I want to make one quick ministry announcement before we get started. We've been praying for the Ukraine for quite some time now, for a few weeks, and we've heard from uh, some members of our church, the Kovalinskis, even just heard from them on the most recent Sunday evening service about uh, the situation their family was in over there. We've been praying with them and, and for them and looking for ways to serve. Uh, I want you to be aware that our, our North Carolina Baptist Convention is presently serving, sending teams over to serve refugees coming out of the Ukraine. Right now we've got teams going to Budapest, working in warehouses there to stop, stack up uh, refugee boxes. And as well, there are trips being planned to Poland. So if you're a member of our church and that's of interest to you, going on a seven-day trip uh, to serve in that area of the world, come see Jonathan Morgan or see me after uh, the sermon. We'd love to share with you more about what our convention of churches are doing to serve abroad. And let's be in prayer for those teams. Let's bow and pray now. Father in heaven, we do pray for those teams as they go out, that they would shine the, the light of Jesus Christ for all to see, and that many would be ministered to and comforted physically, but also comforted spiritually by the truth that's found in Jesus. And Lord, we ask now that you'd come and, and comfort us with the gospel of Jesus Christ and the truth of your word. I pray that you'd help me to preach faithfully and preach clearly that you would use this time together to shape us all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, have you ever felt distant from God? Maybe something like a, a dry season where you open up your Bible and you, you read and you try to give yourself to that Bible reading plan or devotion, but your mind quickly wanders or you try to pray and you pray for maybe 60 seconds and your mind goes another direction. And maybe it's been a season like that, a week or two weeks or three. Maybe that feeling has come in a season of suffering. Or you've prayed and you've got others praying, asking God for relief, and you're still waiting for that relief. You're tempted to feel like God's forgotten you. Maybe that feeling comes with the guilt of sin. Certainly we should, we should feel the need to repent of sin, but sometimes wrongly, even after we've repented of sin, we have a hard time moving through the guilt that Jesus has taken away from us. Maybe you've experienced a, a season like this recently, Maybe you come in this morning feeling that way. What do you do in a moment like that? How do you respond as a Christian in a moment where you, you're tempted to feel like God is, is distant? What we need in those moments is what we need every day, to hear the promises of God, to hear and be reminded of, to be stirred up, to trust and to believe God, to hear His Word, to hear His precious promises, and by His grace and the power of His Spirit to cling to those promises. For those who are in Christ, we have the assurance that God is with us, that God will keep us, that God will never leave us or forsake us. Those promises are sure in Jesus Christ. If you've been saved by the grace of God, if you've been brought to repent of your sin and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sins, those promises have been made yours. They're, they're ours together as a church. We gather on Sunday mornings, the morning that Jesus got up from the dead, reminded that we live in the power of the resurrection, that all the promises of God have been made yes in Jesus. And so we find assurance in the promise that God gives us His presence, that God gives us protection, and that God so graciously gives us the gift of perseverance. When we were last in Genesis, we saw that 
Jacob sinned. He deceived his father Isaac into blessing him. And now we're right in Genesis in chapter 28. He is on the run. He's on the run for his life as his brother Esau is out for vengeance. Jacob flees the promised land, heading away from God's promise and his blessing that was tied there to the land of Canaan. And it's in this setting that God graciously pursues him. Jacob on the run, running away from blessing, running away from promise, having just committed a terrible sin of lying and taking the Lord's name in vain and deceiving his father, and God graciously pursues him. Isn't that the story of the Bible? God's gracious pursuit of sinners. Let's look at Genesis chapter 28 this morning. Uh, We're going to be in verses 10 through 22. If you want to take your Bible and open up to Genesis chapter 28, if you want to use that pew Bible in front of you, take that pew Bible, turn to page 22, A great way to stay engaged in the sermon is just to open up a copy of God's Word to track along with us. Page 22, Genesis chapter 28, we'll be in verses 10 through 22. And if you've come this morning and you don't own a Bible, we want to give that Bible to you. Use it this morning. Take it home with you. That's our gift to you. Read the Bible. Come talk to one of us at the door, to one of our members around you. We'd love to talk with you more about who God is and how He's revealed Himself in His Word. Let me read through verses 10 through 22 as we begin our time. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, the name of the city Lutz at at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And the stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. If you're taking notes this morning, the main point that I want you to see in this passage is this. God's presence and protection gives us strength to persevere. God's presence and protection gives us strength to persevere. 
Let's break that main point down as we look at this passage in verses 10 through 15. The first point I want you to see is God's presence and protection give us strength. That's what we see in the story of of Jacob. God's presence and protection give us strength. Now Jacob was on the run for his life after he stole his brother Esau's blessing. Now now sure, his mother Rebekah wisely, kind of craftily convinced his father Isaac to send Jacob off to the land of her family, to look for a wife. So while he certainly was going to look for a wife, make no mistake, he was on the run. He was on the run to preserve his life. His brother Esau had a plan to kill him. So he headed toward Haran, which was a place we've seen before in Genesis, the place that Abraham settled for a little while after God called him out of the land of Ur. On this trip, Jacob stops to spend the night. He makes an interesting choice for a pillow. Not exactly a memory foam pillow with cooling gels in it. I heard this as a little kid. That was always strange to me. Why would you choose a stone as a pillow? Well, likely this stone is where he rested his head for protection. That's the setting, though. The the tension here in in this passage is that Jacob is leaving the promised land. So so let's be clear about the setting here. He is going the wrong direction. God's promises were tied to the land of, of Canaan. So much so that his father, Isaac, never left the land. Isaac never left the promised land even to look for a wife. His father, Abraham, sent a servant to find him a a wife. Now, Jacob is God's chosen heir to the blessings. The blessings that belong to Abraham and Isaac, God's chosen. They're going to go to Jacob, not to his brother Esau. Yet Jacob's the one leaving the promised land out of fear. And Esau, well, he's staying put. It's not right. If you're reading this story, you're thinking, well, that's not right. That's not how things are supposed to be here. Esau's staying put in the land of promise. Jacob is going away. If you were hearing this for the first time, you might wonder, is he going to get killed? I mean, look at what he just did. He He deceived his father. What's God going to do to hold him accountable for that? Well, the setting here is one of Jacob being alone, on the run, in a foreign land. And that's the setting that God uses to pursue Jacob. This pursuit, it happens in a, in a dream. But this was no ordinary dream, though. It was an encounter with the Lord. In other places in the book of Genesis, we see that at, at times, God revealed Himself and God revealed His plans in the form of a dream. We'll even see that later on in the life of Joseph. Now, the first part of this dream that's mentioned, it's the ladder. This ladder, or even, it's kind of like a stairway. It's an access point from from heaven to earth. We'll come back to that in just a moment, but the function of this ladder, just basically to see, it connects heaven to earth. The second aspect of that dream describes its, its angels. They're ascending and descending upon this ladder, moving up and down this staircase. So as, as spiritual beings, as messengers of God, they have access to heaven and they also are here on earth. That's a picture there. They're in both realms. They exist in heaven, praising and worshiping God, ministering to Him in that way, giving Him the glory that is due His name. And they minister to all of God's people here on earth as His chosen servants. Now, the main focus of the dream, it's not the ladder. It's not the angels. It's the one who stood above the ladder. That's the main focus of this dream. We see there in verse 13. It's the Lord. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father and the God of Isaac. 
This revelation of the Lord standing above the ladder, it showed God connected with the world that he created. God not absent from his creation, certainly ruling over it, transcendent, high, lifted up, but at the same time connected, drawing near to this world that he created and drawing near to his people. God was was graciously reaching down from heaven to bless Jacob. Now notice here, Jacob is not pursuing the Lord. He's running away. He's fleeing after failure and after sin. The picture here in the story, and again, it's the story of the Bible, God pursuing sinners. God was pursuing Jacob. Now in the New Testament, Jesus taught about himself by pointing to Jacob's dream. And Lindsay just read that for us just a few moments ago. In the Gospel of John, Jesus points to this dream in Genesis 28. He uses the language here of Genesis 28, 12 to teach about himself. Now, we don't jump around often in this Bible, but I want you to turn. I want you to look at this passage. Turn with me to to John chapter 1. If you're using Pew Bible, that's page 887. John chapter 1, page 887. In John 1, Nathanael professes Jesus as the Son of God. And Jesus uses the language here of Genesis 28, 12 to teach about who he is. Look at verse 51 of John 1. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Again, Jesus was referring to this dream of the angels of God ascending and descending. But notice in verse 51, he doesn't mention the latter. Rather, he points to himself. The angels of God were ascending and descending on the Son of Man. In other words, Jesus is the ladder from heaven to earth. He's the ladder that connects heaven and earth. The ladder in Genesis 28, Jesus is interpreting and saying this pointed to, to him. He is the access point from heaven to earth. There is only one mediator between God and man, Jesus. So what Jacob saw in a dream, Christ accomplished through his death and resurrection. He's the latter. You know, when we kicked off this series in Genesis, we considered that the story of the Bible is a story about heaven and earth. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, the story of the Bible starts off. In the beginning, God created what? The heavens and the earth. The Garden of Eden that God placed Adam and Eve in. Genesis 1, Genesis 2, no sin in the world, perfect relationship with God, perfect relationship with one another in all of creation. Garden of Eden, it was a type of access point between heaven and earth. They shared perfect fellowship with God and with one another. Now, when Adam and Eve sinned against God, it was earth rebelling against heaven. And God sent them out. He kicked them out of the garden, drove them away from his presence. And in the rest of the story of Genesis, you see the distance increasing between sinful people on earth and a holy God in heaven. all, All the way through the flood, the Tower of Babel, we see this distance increasing. But from Genesis 3 on, this promise of this one who would come to crush the head of the serpent, to defeat 
Satan and sin and death, the promise that pointed forward to Jesus Christ, from Genesis 3 on, we see that God is taking the initiative from heaven to redeem people on earth. Throughout the Old Testament, the story of the Old Testament is God pursuing and making His presence known to a specific group of people, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's family that would become the nation of Israel. God reaching down from heaven to Jacob and to his descendants in Israel to dwell among them, the gift of his presence given to them. For Jacob, this began with this dream. It's important to know this dream in Genesis 28, it it pointed and it looked forward to Jesus. Jesus came down from heaven where he eternally existed. He came down to earth to be born of a woman. Jesus, the Son of God, became flesh, and He he dwelt among us. The presence of God with us. Emmanuel, God with us. And Jesus laid down His life, and He died on the cross to pay the penalty for the sins of anyone who would turn and trust in Him. He resurrected from the dead three days later that anyone who would repent of their sins and put their faith in Jesus Christ would be saved would be redeemed, purchased, bought back from sin, bought into a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Genesis 28 looked forward to that moment. Jesus, the only mediator between God and people. Jesus, the latter, the only way to God. There is no other way. He is the only mediator between God and heaven and people here on earth. And if you come here today and you're not a Christian, we're glad that you're here. We want you to know this, though. You can know God and get right with Him today if you put your faith in Jesus Christ. You can be forgiven of your sins today. You can be filled with the presence of God and His Holy Spirit at the moment that you would seek forgiveness from God for your sin against Him and turn to Jesus Christ and receive His payment for sin. If you've come today, don't leave without talking to someone about that. Talk to one of our our members. Talk to someone at the door, one of our, our pastors. I'll be right down here afterwards. This is the greatest blessing you can know, the greatest gift you could ever receive. It's an urgent gift that you need right now to know the God who created you. Well, this revelation of God reaching down from the top of the ladder, it's a picture of God pursuing Jacob. And again, keep in mind the setting here. Jacob is on the run. His last actions involve putting on goat skin to deceive his blind father. He repeatedly lied to his father, even taking the Lord's name in vain to deceive his father into blessing him. And if you heard this story for the first time, you might wonder that the Lord appearing here in a dream. Was this the Lord coming for retribution? Well, no. This was the Lord coming with blessing. This was the Lord graciously pursuing Jacob and coming, not with retribution, but with grace and promises. First, the Lord identifies Himself, and then the Lord makes promises. Now, these are the the same promises that God gave to Abraham and then to Isaac. He was the God of Abraham. He's the God of Isaac, and now he promises to be the God of Jacob. 
At the end of verse 13, what God promised to Abraham, He now promises to Jacob. Land and offspring. This promise continues on to, to Jacob. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Verse 14 continues on with guaranteed blessings. God guarantees the blessings of Abraham to Jacob. It's a guarantee. These now are given to, to you. And with these guaranteed blessings comes guaranteed protection. No one will be able to take this blessing away. This blessing is, is given. It will not be revoked. This blessing is something that God will see to it, will endure. In verse 15, God gives Jacob the guarantee of protection for the journey. While Jacob was away on this journey, away from the promised land, God promised his divine presence and protection along the way. Look at the three promises there in verse 15. I am with you. I will keep you. I will not leave you. The three greatest blessings you can know, God is with you, God will keep you, God will not leave you. Jacob was journeying away from the promised land, no one with him, all by himself, but God says you're not alone. I am with you. First, God promises his presence. Behold, I'm with you. It's his presence he's promising. Now consider the magnitude of this blessing. The one who rules over the earth at the top of the ladder, he's with you. The one who created everything you can see around you by the power of his word, that's the one that's, that's with you. The one at the top of the ladder, no one higher than him, served by angels, ruling over the earth he created, this is the one who's with you. This is the one who promises to, to keep you. There was never a place where Jacob could go where God would not be with him. What an amazing promise. He could never find himself in a situa situation where he was beyond God's care. He could endure everything that he would face, every challenge. He would even persevere through every failure and all of his flaws because God's with him. Next, the Lord promises his protection. I will keep you. In the presence of the Lord, there is safety, there is security, there is refuge. This word keep, it's shepherding language. God promises to, to shepherd him like a shepherd keeps watch over his flock. The God of heaven is going to keep watch over Jacob, going to protect him from enemies, both spiritual and physical. God will keep him. God will indeed shepherd him back to the promised land. Jacob was fleeing away. God's saying, I'm going to keep you. I'm going to shepherd you back to this land. Nothing could get in the way of God being with Jacob and keeping him. And then finally, God promises to give perseverance. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. In other words, God's protection will outlast Jacob's journey. God's protection will outlast the journey. He guarantees he will accomplish his plans with Jacob. I am with you. I'm your keeper. I will not leave you. In other words, you do not have to accomplish this plan by yourself. I will see to it. Notice that God keeps repeating the phrase here, I will. To emphasize his own power, four times this phrase is used. I will give you the land. I will 
keep you. I will bring you back. I will not leave you. God provides assurance, certainty to His promises. Make no mistake about it. God's plan of redemption is accomplished by His power and by His grace alone. And that brings us assurance as God's people that it does not rely on us. God uses us. He involves us. He includes us. He calls us to obedience. We're called to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're called as a church to make disciples. We're called to obedience. That's important. It matters. We're called to devotion. We'll get to that in just a moment. Verses 16 through 22. We play an important part in God's work of redemption all by His grace. But He does not need us. He is full of grace and wisdom and power. He will see to it Himself that His plan is accomplished. And that truth... That promise brings comfort to God's people. These promises brought Jacob confidence and comfort. Later on, his descendants, the nation of Israel, they would find confidence and comfort in these promises. And today, God's people, the redeemed of the Lord in Jesus Christ, those who've put their faith in Jesus Christ, we find comfort and confidence in these promises. In the New Testament, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, I've mentioned this verse already a couple of times. The Apostle Paul highlighted, for all the promises of God find their yes in Him, meaning in Jesus. The promise that the Lord will be with His people and will keep His people is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is the latter. And we can look back to Genesis 28 and we can be confident that just like the Lord was with Jacob, He's with us. Just like the Lord kept Jacob, He will keep us. Jesus is with us. Jesus is with you always. In Matthew 28, 20, the beautiful promise we've been thinking a lot about lately in the story of, of Genesis. Jesus has promised to be with His people to the end of the age. Well, brother and sister, I wonder how long it takes you to realize God is with you. How far into a difficulty or, or struggle does it take to realize God is with you? I think part of our, our maturing and our faith as Christians is, God, help us be reminded of that more quickly. Our ministry to one another in this local church, it's not to solve each other's problems. I love the way this congregation seeks to minister to others and meet practical needs. Keep doing that. That's awesome. But a way that we minister to one another, a primary way, is to, to remind one another of the promises of God. And sometimes the best way to do that is to pray with people, to pray for them, to pray in light of God's promises. Uh, we'll offer it every week. We're down at these doors. Jonathan mentioned it earlier when he was leading the service. Uh, our pastors, we want to make ourselves accessible and available to you. We stick down here for 30, 45 minutes. If you ever want one of us to pray with you, just come up here. We'd be happy to pray with you and for you. Members of the church, a great ministry afterwards, certainly to have conversations that are encouraging, but pray with one another. Pray for one another. This is the time we've come together on Sunday mornings. Let's make good use of that time by praying God's promises for one another. It's part of our, our ministry to one another, to point each other to God's promises in Jesus. Jesus has promised that He will keep His people. In John 10, verse 28, Jesus said, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. In other words, if you've put your faith in Jesus, if you belong to Him, you are kept by Him. Christian, God's protection in Christ will outlast your journey. 
God's protection in Christ will outlast your suffering. It will outlast your sorrow. It will outlast every trial that you face. The hope we have is not that our trials are going to go away. If Christ doesn't return first, every one of us in this room will suffer a final trial of death. And we may suffer that trial far more quickly than we think. It's the last trial that we'll face. I hope we don't die. I hope Christ returns first. I hope He comes. I hope I'm alive. I hope you're alive when Jesus returns. It's why we minister. This ministry of the gospel, part of the good news, He's coming back. He's finishing off the redemption that He accomplished at the cross and the empty tomb. But if the Lord tarries, we will all suffer that final trial of death. The hope we have is this. God's protection and His love in Christ, it will outlast every trial. A Christian has never known a trial they will not outlast. That final trial will come, and by God's grace, after that suffering, comes glory to be forever with the Lord. Jesus said He'll never leave us, that nothing can separate us from Him. In Romans 8, 38, we hear, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Brother and sister in Christ, in times of of hardship, look to the Lord and remember the promises that He has made to you. Our confidence is is not in our own wisdom to navigate a trial. Our confidence is in His presence, that He will carry us through difficult times. He will carry us through dangerous times. He will carry us through uncertain circumstances, unsettling times. The confidence we have, the comfort we have, that in Christ, God is with us. He will keep us. He will never leave us. And we find promise, we find joy in His promises. In verses 16 through 22, in the second part of this passage, we see the response of of Jacob. The second point I want you to see this morning in verses 16 through 22 is this, God's promises strengthen us to persevere in devotion. God's promises strengthen us to persevere in devotion. This gracious revelation of God, it produced a response from Jacob of worship and devotion. In verses 16 and 17, we see that Jacob responded in worship. So so when Jacob, what he says when he wakes up, it shows he realizes that was more than just a regular dream. Look at his response in verse 16. Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. This was Jacob's first encounter with God. Abraham and Sarah had encountered God. Isaac and Rebekah had encountered God. And now Jacob had as well. And when he woke up, he was afraid and he was in an awe. It was a response of, of worshipful fear. A response of, of reverence before the God of heaven. His reference there in verse 17 to the house of God and, and the gate of heaven, they're descriptions of what he just experienced. Heaven and earth connected. The Lord drew near. 
God had promised His presence to be with them, and Jacob recognized this. Now, Jacob acknowledges the presence of God. In verse 18, we see that he, he stood up the very stone that he had used for a pillow, for protection for his head. He stood that up as a, as a pillar, pouring oil on top of it as a type of sacrifice to the Lord. And he gave the place the name Bethel, which means house of God. Now, Jacob will return here later in chapter 35. We see he comes back here to build an altar, building an altar is an act of, of worship. But for now, this place was marked as his encounter with God, where heaven met earth. And I think his response here shows that he was worshiping in this moment as well. His worship led to devotion. Starting in verse 20, Jacob makes a vow. Now, notice the, the if-then language that we see in these verses. Now, some scholars read this and they think, well, you know, it seems like Jacob's back in bargaining mode again. Like he loves to bargain. He was striking deals, kind of swindling his brother Esau. I don't think that's what's happening here. I think very clearly Jacob's making a vow. He's binding himself to God's word. So the, the if then, the, the if is recounting God's promises, what God has said in his word. So Jacob's vow is founded on the word of God and his promises. That's why he repeats the promised blessing in his vow, starting at verse 20. If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. Simply put, Jacob vows if the Lord brings him back safely to the promised land, he will worship the Lord. Uh, sure, you would love to hear a stronger response here. I mean, you just saw the Lord in a dream. I'd like to hear a little bit more than that. But how often do we think, man, if God would just make His will clear to me and known to me, if God would just appear and tell me and speak audibly to me, well, then I would be on fire. I'd be so full of faith. I don't know that we would. We might have the same response as, as Jacob in that moment. I think he had a response of faith, for he repeats the, the promises of the Lord back. But we have a picture here that his faith is new. It's not complete. It's not yet mature. He is a work in progress. God, indeed, will strengthen his faith and his future descendants. His vow continues in verse 22. He vows to build a sanctuary for the Lord, and he vows to give a, a tenth or a tithe to God. All of this following in the pattern of his grandfather Abraham, who gave a, a tithe back in Genesis chapter 14 and, and called the Lord his God. This would also be an example for the future nation of Israel, for the descendants of Jacob. The Lord would be their God. They would enjoy communion with God. They would worship in the house of God, in the temple. They would worship God by giving Him a, a tithe, a tenth of what God had, had given them. So the response to God revealing Himself and giving His promises, it was worship and devotion. And it's interesting that Jacob's devotion is immediately tied to his giving a tithe. Again, this isn't just like a pastor's hobby horse. Quite frankly, a lot of pastors don't like talking about giving, but I think we need to be clear. Just because there might be some television preachers who want you to send their money in doesn't mean that real preachers should be quiet. 
We need to hear God's word. We need to hear what God has said in his word. We see Jacob giving a tithe. That's interesting to me. Lots of different things he could have vowed to do. He, he, he worships. He sees God. He hears his word. God, I'm going to be devoted to you. And one of the ways that my devotion will be seen is by me not clinging to my possessions, but rather understanding they're given by you, and I'm therefore going to give them back to you and for your service and for the ministry. And that's how it is with God's people today. If we're devoted to the Lord, that will be demonstrated necessarily through generous giving of our finances to the Lord. And for Christians in the New Covenant, that is our financial giving to our local church. We see a picture of New Testament giving in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2. The Apostle Paul instructs Christians there on the first day of every week. That's today. That's Sunday morning. Now, back then, that was not a day off. Chick-fil-A would have been open back then. That, that Sunday, the Jewish Sabbath was Saturday. Sunday was a day of work, and so Christians would get up and would worship God before they would go on about their day and about their week. It's still like that in lots of cultures throughout the world right now. They don't have an, a, week, a weekend like we do in America. The Apostle Paul is saying on the first day of every week, on Sunday morning, that the morning that Jesus got from the dead and that God's people assemble as a church, each of you is to put something aside and store it up. What that passage helps us know, many of us might understand, well, well, giving, generous giving, uh, cheerful giving, it's connected to our heart and to our personal worship. But this passage also lets us know that our giving is also connected to our corporate worship. It's why we pass offering plates in our service. There are certainly different ways you can do it as a church. I don't think it's prescribed. We don't see you have to pass a plate like that, but I think it's a good tradition that recognizes this is not disconnected from our worship. It's not separate from our worship. It's certainly not meant to be a part of show, but it's meant to be a moment where you would give of your offering to the Lord. And I would even encourage you to use that moment, the offertory and the music. Uh, it's not there merely to provide a bathroom break for you or a time to talk to the person next to you. I understand when you got to go, you got to go, whether that's during the sermon or the offering. But use that time more and more as a time of meditation, a time of worship, a time of recognizing, preparing your heart to hear God's Word and hear the sermon. We understand that from 1 Corinthians 16 and other passages that giving is a part of our corporate worship. Giving our finances to the Lord, it's a duty. It is a response to God's grace. And while we don't see a tithe or a specific percentage given to Christians in the New Testament, it's not prescribed there, I think you would be hard-pressed for a biblical position to determine giving less than that as normal Christian giving. I think it's a good principle to work from. I think that the, the aspect of giving that the Apostle Paul highlights is qualitative. It's not legislative in terms of a percentage, but it's qualitative in the sense of look how much we've been given in Jesus. Look how generous God has been with us in Jesus. Look how generous He's been to bless us materially, and we want to give that back to Him for the spread of the gospel and the building up of the church. Simply put, I think this, your giving to your local church is a thermometer that gauges your worship and discipleship. I think your giving to your local church is a thermometer that gauges your worship and your discipleship. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2, make a plan. Have a plan to give. Give intentionally. Give generously. Give sacrificially. I think it's also a type of thermostat. But as we give, we'll recognize, God, you've given everything to us. Though we grow anxious far too quickly about our finances and the future, 
that we grow anxious far too quickly when we see the pump, the gas prices, the pump go up. God, what have you never provided for us? Even in those times where you may have lacked the ability to pay your rent, the ability to, to, to pay for food on the table, think about maybe how God provided you for you in that moment. We even provide for one another through our benevolence fund, understanding there's plenty of ways for God to provide for His people. Whether you have an abundance or whether you're struggling financially, God is there to provide all of our needs. You know, you can read more on Christian giving. If you want to read more, just go to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, chapter 9, read more about that later today. Great chapters for us to consider. But I wonder this, what is your giving reveal about your devotion? What is your giving reveal about your devotion? True worship responds to God's promises with devotion. As we understand God's provision and love for us in Jesus, our worship is fueled and our resolve is deepened. Now, while Jacob's dream was an amazing revelation, those who are in Christ have received an even more amazing revelation than the dream in chapter 28. God has revealed Himself in Christ. No revelation more amazing than that. God coming in flesh, fully God, fully man, Jesus came in the flesh. And as those who live on the the other side of the cross and the empty tomb, how much more do we have as a motivation to serve the Lord, to be devoted to Him, to give of our money to Him, as those who live on the other side of the cross and the empty tomb, awaiting the glorious return of the Lord Jesus Christ, how much more of a motivation do we have to serve the Lord and to be filled with hope? We see God for who He is in Christ. We will have reverence for Him. As we look to Christ and His precious promises, our worship and our devotion are are fueled and strengthened. Well, God's presence and protection gives us strength to persevere. Think about how that would impact the original audience hearing this story from Moses, the narrator of Genesis. As they were wandering in the wilderness, bound for the promised land, they would find comfort in this story. Just like the Lord was with Jacob, He's with us. Just like the Lord was with Jacob and kept Jacob, the Lord will keep us. And for those who are in Christ, we can look at this story and find comfort. Jesus is the ladder. The ladder has been revealed in Jesus Christ. He's made a way for us to know the God of heaven and to live in fellowship with Him. Through Jesus, heaven and earth are connected. Jesus is with us. Jesus will keep us. Jesus will never leave us or forsake us. But we're Christian. How much more of a difference, how much of a difference would it make in your life if you believed these promises more? How much of a difference would it make in your fight against sin and temptation this week to believe this promise that Jesus is with you? Jesus will keep you. He gives you the strength that you need to say no to ungodliness and worldly lust and to walk in obedience and worship to God. How would it make a difference in the trial and the hardship that you face, the difficulties and the suffering that you know, to be reminded and to cling to the promise, Jesus is with you. He will keep you. He will never leave you or forsake you. Brother and sister, we too are on a journey. We are on the way to the promised land. The promised land isn't Charlotte. It's a nice place. It's a great place to live. I, I love living here, but perhaps maybe even why we don't give more is because we think this is the promised land, like we've arrived. 
But as God's people, we understand as nice as this place is, this isn't home. As Christians, we are aliens, we are strangers, we are passing through a foreign land, the promised land. We, we don't know it yet. We're bound for promised land. Ultimately, that will be known in the new heavens and the new earth. That will come when Christ returns, when He appears in glory. But we are not home yet. This journey is difficult. As we face hardships and difficulties, as we face our own failures, our fears, our flaws, We're reminded by the the news headlines, we're not home yet. This world is filled with suffering and evil, with the violence of war, bloodshed, death. We're not home yet. Brother and sister, be filled with hope. We are not on our own. We're not left to ourselves. We must look to the Lord and His precious promises. He alone is faithful. Our comfort is found in the promise that wherever we go, or whatever we are going through, God is with us. In Christ, God is with us and for us. His presence and protection strengthening us to persevere. What is our hope in life and death? Christ alone. Christ alone. What is our only confidence that our souls to Him belong? Who holds our days within His hand? What comes apart from His command? And what will keep us to the end? The love of Christ in which we stand. We're going to close singing that song this morning. May we be filled with hope found in Jesus as we close. Let's bow and pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would strengthen us and comfort us this morning as your people to know your presence, to trust your provision for us in Jesus. We pray you'd strengthen our faith this morning. Lord, we pray that you would use us to be an encouragement to one another in this church, that we would point one another to Jesus, that in Christ, God is with us. In Christ, God will keep us. Christ, God will never leave us or forsake us. May you grow our confidence in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.